I know David Thompson spoke out of Acts 3, I believe, last week, and uh, we're really not moving particularly chronologically or in a detailed way through Acts. We are certainly going through it sort of systematically. We're not going to jump to chapter 15 after chapter 3 or something, but probably after the Christmas period, I will pick up later 4, 5, 6, those sort of chapters. But around this time, we're still looking at the first two or three. And before I leave those first couple of chapters, I want to bring something to you this morning, which I felt God really challenged me and laid on my heart for this morning. So I just want God's help to do it right, not to be too long so that we can worship and respond as well. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your gracious presence among us. And I just pray, Lord, that you'd help me to convey what's on my heart simply and clearly. And I pray, Lord, you'd speak to each one of us. And Lord, we just say we love you. We want to follow you. And I just pray for your provocation and your instruction and your exhortation and your encouragement to come through your word to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right. The effective outreach that hits the streets in chapter 2 of Acts, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, does seem to have some preconditions, which I want to talk about this morning for a few minutes, which you can trace in chapter 1. Now, I know when I was speaking last about Acts, I spent quite a long time on the first 11 verses and spoke about those big stones. But once you get past verse 11 of chapter 1, it all gets a bit puzzling It's a a strange little passage of scripture. They're trying to find a replacement for Judas. And what they do very much smacks of the old covenant way of doing things. They cast lots, which is an idea they presumably got from the Old Testament. And in actual fact, we never hear of that being done again, the casting of the lots. Funnily enough, we don't hear of Matthias again, who they choose with the lot. I don't think that means it was a mistake, But it is a strange little period. But in it, there are some important sort of guidelines or principles which I think are important for laying the foundation to what happens in the next chapter, which is the launch of the age of the Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And really, the launch of the age that we live in. But let's read then from verse 12. I think for the sake of time, I'm only going to read 12 to 14 and then 21 to the first few verses of chapter 2. But we'll start at verse 12 of Acts 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Then, I won't necessarily read it all, but then there's this incident where they say we must replace Judas. I will just flag up two challenging or interesting things from that. One is in verse 17, he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Judas was actually not a real disciple, it would seem. Jesus said, one of you is a devil. He, was a, he became uh, demonized later, but it seems that he never really engaged in faith and in his spirit with the ministry with Jesus. And yet he was so involved that the disciples themselves 
didn't really know the difference until it was exposed on the la- at the Last Supper. That's a sobering fact that people can appear very good, but only God knows the heart. And actually, only you know, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? It's not your outward performance, it's your inward heart that counts. And uh, this guy shared in the ministry, but he never shared in the faith and the love and the devotion to Jesus. Just a challenge to everybody. It is about that. Even in that inner circle, there was what we would call, a or the Puritans would call, a false professor. Someone who was professing to be a follower of Jesus, but in their hearts they really weren't. It's a challenge for all of us, worth remembering and needs to be said sometimes. So that's in there as well. And then we go on to verse 21. They say it's necessary to choose one to replace him. And they're actually quite precise about the qualifications, which I think is another, by the way, interesting fact. We need to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. They were very clear that they were replacing Judas with someone with quite precise qualifications. Someone who had seen the ministry of Jesus and been with them throughout the time of Jesus' ministry, beginning from John's baptism, so that someone was real, real witness to the miracles, a real witness to the teaching, first-hand experience of those things, then had seen the crucifixion and had witnessed the resurrection. I would argue that they were rightly putting in a a final foundation stone, the twelve apostles of the Lamb, of which they choose one called Matthias. We don't hear much about several of the others, not in our Bibles, Barnabas and others, uh, not, um, sorry, Barnabas, some of the other uh, ones named there, you know, Simon the Zealot or whatever, but, but they clearly saw it as important to have these twelve complete. We then later in the New Testament find Paul as an apostle, Barnabas and uh, Silas are sometimes referred to as apostles, and there's a general use of the term. There's no doubt in my mind that the twelve are unique in history, and they were a unique group who were the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem, the church, and they had to have been witnesses of Jesus. They had to have been with him to, as it were, touch him and heard him and, and be witnesses of what he taught and what he did and of his resurrection. But there are other apostolic giftings, even in the New Testament, that are foundational to the church, that are equipped and gifted by the Holy Spirit, and that are not that unique 12 apostles of the Lamb. Because at a later time, false apostles will arrive, those who who aren't followers of Jesus. And the definition isn't, well, it's easy to find out, were they with Jesus for three years? Did they see the resurrection? That's not what they're, they're, they're actually concerned with their teaching and with their fruit, etc. So just by the way... I have no problems with the fact that there is apostolic gifting other than the twelve. Though I would not say it is the same as the twelve who are very clearly unique figures in history. Something to talk over lunch for the more uh, developed Christian thinkers amongst you. Because I think there is sometimes confusion about apostolic ministry. That's not my subject this morning. Let's carry on. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas also known as Justice, which would be easier to say, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. 
Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Michael Green has written a very good commentary on Acts called 30 Years That Changed the World. And he points out that there were some preconditions to the breakthrough that comes in Acts 2. And I want to, in a sense, pinch some of his ideas, but make them my own and apply them to us. And I want to pick up four things with you today that I think are important for us here in Winchester Family Church as we move to the end of 2008 and face 2009 and as we increasingly pray, oh God, give us breakthrough. Holy Spirit, move on us. Move us on from where we are. And I think we need, we all have a heart cry for that. And I think we need to look at some of the things that were in place in these disciples even before the day of Pentecost and maybe were sort of preconditions of what was to happen on that day. So I've got four things I want to talk about. One, the first one, is obedience. Now hear me, obedience. In Acts 1, verse 4, Jesus told his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. He gave them a very clear instruction. In verse 12, we read that that is precisely what they planned to do. They went to Jerusalem, they settled themselves there, and they waited until the next thing happened, the Holy Spirit came. Jesus gave them a clear instruction, they obeyed it exactly and without controversy and argument. They did what Jesus told him. Now, the disciples had not always been brilliant at doing what Jesus told them. If you read through the, the, act, uh, the Gospels, you will find that they quite often were quite rebellious and awkward. But something seems to have changed. The crucifixion, the experience of the resurrection, and then probably the post-resurrection teachings from Jesus. It had been a remarkable few weeks, a remarkable six or eight weeks they'd gone through. And actually it had changed something in them. They knew who Jesus was with no doubt now. And they knew that they had to obey Jesus They had to get right with God, and some of them had had to do that. Thomas had been through his experience of getting right with Jesus. Peter had, who had denied Jesus, and then had to sort of go through that rather emotional, difficult conversation on the beach afterwards. They'd had experiences they knew they had now got to obey Jesus and follow what he said. Now, remember, they don't know the rest of the story at this point. In Acts 1, they don't know what's coming. They don't know the details of what we know, Pentecost and the rest of the history of of the early church and of Acts. So they only know that Jesus has told them to do something and they have got to obey him and they've got to stick with it until the next thing happens. Later, later in the story, they would themselves have looked back and realised that their obedience was very important that actually it was very important that they did do what Jesus... If they had been all at sixes and sevens, they hadn't been together, waiting, 
sort of not rushed ahead. They realised that it was so good they didn't rush out and all try and evangelise, for example, Jerusalem, Judea. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They must have looked back and said, that was so good that we obeyed Jesus. It was so right that we did that. So here is our challenge, very simple on all of these points. I would say to you that a characteristic of modern Western Christianity is that we're not very good at obeying Jesus. Now, I'm not just having to go at you. I'm joining you and our colleagues and saying, we are not brilliant at obeying Jesus. We're not brilliant at that simple and straightforward obedience. Jesus teaches a lot of things. The New Testament teaches a lot of things. Most of us know them quite well. Our problem is doing them. And that lack of obedience is a real issue that we have to address. Say, God, help me. I, you know, I need to put that right if it applies to us. The disobedience, I think, is seen widely in the church, in, amongst Christians, amongst evangelicals, charismatics. There's a disobedience seen in our attitude to sexual morality, to relationships generally, our attitude to authority in church or in society. Uh, Christians over-venerate religious traditions. That's disobedient to Jesus. Our use of time, our materialism, our reluctance to witness, our prayer life, our attitude to God's word. You could go on and on. You could probably add our attitude to the poor. All sorts of things. You think, do we really obey Jesus? Now, what I'm really saying to you, I am joining you in it. I'm not just having a, giving you a hard time. But we have got to understand, if we are serious about being followers of Jesus, if we're serious about reaching the world, if we're serious about breakthroughs, we have to say, if Jesus has said something clearly, I am going to clearly obey it. That's how we have to live. And that's actually how they were living. Now, it's a general point, but I guess it should, I think, be a in one way, something we're all uncomfortable about, including myself sometimes. Look, do we do it? We can be general about it. And I'm sure many of the things I even quickly listed, we might not be guilty of. But there are things we will be. Do you do what Jesus has told you to do? Do you know you do it? Can you say that I conscientiously believe that when I understand something of what Jesus has said, I will obey it? There's a little check this morning. It's a little MOT, but it's quite a serious one. Because we need to be obedient to Jesus. We just need to do it. <laughs> they did it, and we need to do it. God can do amazing things with people who are obedient. In fact, they, have, they can be very limited in their gifting and their abilities. But if they're obedient to Jesus, he can do some great stuff with them. The other side of the coin is people who are very gifted who won't be obedient, often they're very limited in what Jesus can do with them. I think this obedience was very important. And if they hadn't obeyed Jesus, they would never have seen what was about to happen. For them, the obedience was this. They had to wait. Now, waiting can be obedience. They had to wait. They just had to sit there, in effect, waiting for God to do the next thing. And then it happened. Okay, but they didn't just sit there, because the next thing I want to talk about is prayer. So one precondition was obedience, Another one was prayer. To be precise, corporate prayer. Let's look at a few verses. Acts, they go on the screen. Acts 1.14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Acts 1.24. <clears throat> then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. 
show us which of these two you have chosen. And then Acts 2, 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So the first disciples seemed to spend a lot of time praying together. Corporate prayer was an important element of their life. Now that seems to be prayer amongst a bunch of people who would not necessarily have found it easy to gather together and and get on together. We can have a slightly idealistic view of them. We think, oh, they were gross. It's always easy for them. By the way, there are 120 of them. It tells us precisely that in in verse 15. We say, well, it's easy for them. It's easy. You know, they were there, the church, Jesus. I would argue that it was no easier for them than it is for you. They had families. They had lives to live. They also had a lot of baggage with one another. Have you ever thought back of the confusion, the betrayals, the rivalries that have been part of the disciples? Not actually a hundred years ago, within the last few months, within the last few weeks, Thomas had called the others liars. They said, we've seen Jesus. I don't believe you. Unless I see him myself, I don't believe you. They called the women liars when they first came back. Peter had sworn his head off and denied he knew Jesus. This is in the last few weeks. Let alone earlier, when they, who's the greatest? And I'm James and, you know, we want sons of thunder and, you know, and all that stuff. This was a bunch of ordinary, rather fleshly people. But somehow they were drawn together to pray because they saw something important was happening. I can tell you, I mean it, corporate prayer is important. Brothers and sisters, it's important. To be honest with you, I was somewhat disappointed with the attendance at our last prayer week in September. We've got another prayer week in January, 11th and 16th, prayer and vision. You may have already booked a skiing trip, in which case that's unfortunate and you're lost. But if you haven't booked something, put it in your diary as not a week of ease, but a week of priority. Praying together is vital. God can only meet us sometimes in that context. They were actually doing it when the Pentecost day came. This was a very important factor that despite all their history together, I mean, think of someone you had a row with in the last few months. Perhaps you haven't got anybody like me, of course. But, you know, I mean, that's what they'd had. These are real people. But somehow Jesus had made a difference and they were drawn together And they were seeking God together. I would say prayer together is vital. It's a vital part of church life. We do it in our community groups. Let's do it. Let's pray together in our community groups. We have a little prayer meeting in here. Oh, look, the sign's still up. Ah, that's good. Normally take it down. Prayer meeting, 9.15 to 9.45. About eight of us. That's fine. I know loads of you got kids. But it'd be quite nice if it was 80 out of 300. Maybe 18 would be something. Now, actually, what I mean is there's opportunities to pray together as a church, face-to-face. Marion has, has a prayer thing for ladies in the middle of the week. Now, actually, I find it a battle. We all do. And I've gone through various permutations in my mind. Do we need to make it increasingly attractive for people? I was chatting at King's Church High Wycombe, where I was preaching a few weeks ago, and their prayer week, they did food at every single thing which is a nice idea, you know, breakfast sandwiches and butties. And but there was something in me, although I'm, I'm open to ideas and you may find one or two little foodie bits creep into the next prayer week, 
Actually, there's something in me that says it shouldn't be necessary to make prayer attractive and easy for Christians to pray together. Do you not agree in your heart? We just ought to do it. I think we should make it attractive. We've got to think creatively about timings. We've got Jeff and Angela Vane helping us to give a bit more uh, freshness to next year, year, you know, January's prayer week. We do know it will be, uh, it's a challenge. We know people can't make every morning. We understand all that. But I think there are opportunities to pray together and we need to take them with both hands. It was great to see people in large numbers here praying for Ray Stannard. That's wonderful. We need to do it for just normal prayer as well. It's part of what opens the door for God to do things with us. Well, let's look at the next one. Unity. Unity. Look at Acts, it's on the screen, Acts 1.14 and in fact 2.1, what we've just read. So that's why we don't need to read it again. There's a stress on their togetherness. There's a stress on the fact that they were together in one place. Now, another problem with our modern Western church life is that it's pretty well bedeviled, generally, by individualism. Very hyper-individualism, actually, and often a lot of disunity. There are a lot of tensions in churches and church life. There are splits sometimes. Now, these tensions and splits are often not around major doctrinal things. They're often over superficial things, people's likes and dislikes about worship, Length of the services, changes in format, some perceived slight by someone, or even a clumsiness by a leader that was felt to be not put right. And people will actually begin to think about changing church on the basis of things as fragile and superficial as that. It's very common, and so common that people think it's quite reasonable to think like that. That's not how you build church. That's not how you get revival. You don't get anywhere with a church with attitudes like that. And in actual fact, this individualism has been made worse in our part of the world by a consumerist attitude to Christianity, which I think is getting to a stage of crisis. I think consumerist Christianity is dreadful, but I think it's so common we hardly notice it. It's people thinking to themselves things like this, does this serve me any longer? Does, is this something that amuses me? Or pleases me anymore? Is it comfortable for me and my kids like it used to be? Quite. You think, well, quite important. No, they're not. They're consumerist. They're consumerist. It's nothing to do with commitment to the local body. It's gibberish. You know, well, does it quite scratch where I itch? You're talking about where you itch. Interested in your itch. We're building the church. We're reaching the nations. You know, people do actually increasingly think that's okay. Does it meet my needs? Does it harmonise? Now we've got this modern thing that you can all watch God TV. I've got it as well. I've got the internet, don't know how to use it. We can all listen to Mark Driscoll. We can listen to every blooming good preacher in the whole world. Wonderful. So we've all got our own little mix of what it actually should be like. Actually, we're building local churches. Okay. I know what it's like to be in Mark Driscoll's church. I've talked to people who've been there. And it actually isn't perfect, surprise, surprise. But he's a brilliant speaker. I've heard it said it's, hear this one, very unfriendly. Ooh, that's what some of you say about here. It's very unfriendly. It's a big group and he's focused on the gospel and he's focused on preaching. He's brilliant. But people actually listen to it and think, look, we build here, okay? We mustn't be consumerist. 
We must not be consumerist. Now, I'm not talking about significant doctrinal things. Once in my life, I made a change from one sort of church to another. And it was doctrinal. It was over the gifts of the Spirit. It's over cessationism. It was a painful, big thing to do. Another time in my life, I moved from Hastings to here, within the same sort of church, feeling clearly called to God, etc. There are these big things. Of course we do them. But actually, we don't make changes on consumerist things. You just don't do it. You can't build church like that. You can't build any church in Winchester like that. And actually, to be honest, we just need to get free of that in our spirits sometimes, in modern Britain. And uh, actually, the doctrinal thing, if I just will pursue this slightly, which I feel to do, the doctrinal thing, which was the thing I made a change on, is the doctrinal issues are why I don't make changes lightly. I actually don't go to church because of personal preferences. I go because of what I believe about the Bible. I would not join an Anglican church. Ever. Okay? Hear that. I love Christ church people. I love Dave Williams. I had people in Hastings had a great fellowship. I don't agree with their ecclesiology and I don't agree with their doctrine. And I've got reasons for why I come here. I love you, but I've got bigger reasons than that. And I think you need... I believe in baptising believers, don't you? I believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I believe in all sorts of things. I mean, I wouldn't go to a Methodist church. I, you say, well, John, you shan't say that. I'm jolly well going to say it. I wouldn't go to a vineyard. I'd only go as, out of fellowship. I don't agree with their views of leadership and how they run church. I think they're lovely people. And I give them a hug and pray for them. But there are reasons why I go to church. I think it through. I pray it through. I then am committed to convictions that I have. And that makes me work stuff out. I wouldn't go to a cessationist evangelical church. Now you say, wouldn't go? I'd go through the door and have fellowship and love people and have fun and laugh. I wouldn't be committed to it. You're looking at me, you don't agree. Well, if you don't agree, think about it. Think whether you're in the right place or not. Because I do believe that. And I actually believe that you go to church because of convictions. You have fellowship elsewhere and you enjoy fellowship with other friends, you love them, but actually you do believe this is where Jesus wants me and this is where I'm working it out. And that's why you can overcome being with a bunch of weirdos sometimes. (laughs) These people were not all lovey-dovey. These people. You think, oh, John, yes, they weren't. I've told you, there's Simon the Zealot. Let's add to it. There's Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Do you know how extremely different they were in their origins? Simon the Zealot was like a terrorist, blowing people up and cutting their throats. Simon the tax collector was a collaborator with the Romans, for goodness sake. Now, they're both there. There is John, the dreamer, lying on Jesus' breast, and Peter, the hothead, swearing his head off. There's actually, in here, Jesus, it says, amongst their number, were his family. Yeah, Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. Oh, that was nice. No, it wasn't. Read in Mark 3 how they got on together. In Mark 3, I think it is on the screen. Marion couldn't work out why I'd put this on the PowerPoint. Now she would know. No, she won't. She's in the creche, poor woman. Right. In, then Jesus entered the house. This is from Mark 3. 
again, again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. So Jesus is in there with his disciples. His mum and brothers are out saying, bring him out, he's gone mad. And then if you read later in the same chapter, when they, they still, this is ongoing, it seemed to go on a lot. They said, come on, bring him out. And, and they, Jesus said, I'm not going, this is my family here. It was quite a conflict. And that's not the only place. You'll read in John's Gospel that his brothers were quite cynical. They said, well, if you're going to be a big shot, you ought to go to Jerusalem. Read it for yourself. They were not all lovey-dovey. Somehow, by now, they'd come through that. But they had memories. You've got a memory, I've got a memory. They remember the fuss they had a few months earlier or two years before. They weren't all the same type of person. But they had been united in Jesus. They knew that God was speaking to them and calling them together. They knew they were here for a bigger purpose than was this comfortable for them. And that is very, very important. There were 120 people, which is an interesting number. It's a sort of average church number. We are a bit bigger than average, probably. Churches aren't always huge, but it is still quite a large number. And they were gathered together and united. And they were following Jesus. They wanted to obey him. He'd reconciled them to himself, and he'd reconciled them to one another. And they were going to preserve the unity that Jesus had forged for them. Now, if we're going to see anything remotely near to what they saw, we have to work this one through. And thank God we do, most of us. We need to know we need to be where Jesus has called us. We need to know we belong to this group. We need to know we're here for substantial reasons that overcome the fact that I'm sitting next to a zealot when I'm a tax collector and that that this bloke smells of fish and I don't like it or whatever it is or that this is the mother who was giving us a hard time two years ago. All this stuff. And you actually work through those things because of Jesus and he's called you together. Now, I believe that's the attitude in which God really does stuff with people. Amen? And I think you work at it. I mean, we're working at it. I think you work at it. Think, what is God calling us to here this time and this season? Can we work through these things? Are we able to do it? Yes, we are. Then we're going to see God break through. Amen? It's important. And the last thing is this, openness to the Holy Spirit. Open us to the Holy Spirit. I don't imagine these 120 people knew what they were waiting for. They had some idea about the Holy Spirit. They would have had ideas from the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit came on prophets and kings and craftsmen and warriors. And they would have seen Jesus and seen him filled with the Spirit. But they knew Jesus was the unique Son of God. They knew that, really knew it, because they'd seen him risen from the dead. So I guess they were fairly aware of the difference between Jesus and themselves. So I'm not sure that they really knew what to expect, but they were open. Now, this is my last main point, but don't lose concentration. What they didn't seem to do is sit around with preconceived ideas, debating what the Holy Spirit might or might not do. I don't know what they were doing. They were praying. Praying sounds a pretty good thing to be doing. They don't seem to have been having a debate about what dogmatically they could or not, could or could not expect. They were just open, waiting for God to move. And I think that openness is very important. I think we need to be willing to receive whatever God wants to do with us. We need to be open to anything the Holy Spirit wants to do. You say, ooh, this is dangerous. No, it's not. I'll tell you why in a minute. We need to be open to the Holy Spirit doing what he wants to do. 
We need to be open to the good gifts our Heavenly Father wants to give us. I think openness is a very important condition of God using you. A humble openness. See, Christians again today, most shades, almost any group, will spend quite a lot of time maintaining what the Holy Spirit can or can't do. Or what would be expected. I mean, you'll get it on every side of the spectrum. There'll be quite an assertive attitude to what you should expect or what might happen. But actually, we need to let God be God. You can't always tell what God's going to do. And we do need to be very careful about judging other people's experiences by what we've experienced. Now, I haven't experienced that, so it can't be right. That sort of thing. We've got to avoid our own previous experiences, setting too great a parameters on what God can do in the future, which would have been a danger here. They were going to experience things they had not seen before. They had not seen before. And there's a great danger that you think your, your previous experiences set the parameters of what you can experience in the future. I don't want to be like that. I struggle with it sometimes, but I don't want to be like that. God help me not to be like that. And I think we need to say the same. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. He must be allowed to be God and do what he wants to do. Now, you say, John, where's the parameter? Where's the res-? Of course there are. Here's what I would say, briefly, are the issues. The Holy Spirit will not do something that clearly contradicts Scripture. Now, you say, oh, well, yeah. Yeah, let, but what are we talking about? Contradicts clear teaching in Scripture, clear doctrines in Scripture, such as something that undermines the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if there is a work, whether it be a wobbly, squeaky, screaming, rolling on the floor work, or a very sensible, argued social work, whatever it is, if it undermines the person of Jesus, I'm suspicious of it. See what I mean? I'm not suspicious of it because you're rolling on the floor squeaking. I'm I'm suspicious because of the fruit. And and sometimes you get quite respectable-looking things that undermine Jesus. So that also isn't a work of God. Because the issue is, is... Does this honour Jesus? Does it promote him as the Son of God? Or does it undermine all that? Does it undermine his work on the cross? You might, here's another maybe one. You might be worried at an unbiblical emphasis on something like angelic beings where they play a role that is only the role of the Holy Spirit or, or the, the, yeah, the role of Scripture. And again, you'd be worried. It's not, you're worried that where it's going. So those things we need to think about. We do need to think about. You might be very worried at anything that promotes sinful behaviour. Immorality grows amongst this circle. It gets more and more immoral. Of course you're worried if sin is in any way promoted. I'd be worried, and am worried, when one obscure doctrine is emphasised at the exclusion of everything else. That's another trait that sometimes emerges. I'm worried when anything that's called a move of God actually produces a legalistic bondage in people's lives. That worries me. So, of course, we bring some concerns. But actually, where Scripture is not dogmatic, we mustn't be dogmatic. And a lot of the terminology about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is very open. It's very open terminology. I want to give you a few examples quickly. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, you tell me, what is he talking about? 
Oh, I bet you've all got answers. I've got a few answers. But actually, it's not that precise, is it? There was something that went on that demonstrated the Spirit's power. It might have been physical healings. I think it well might have been. It might have been some form of manifestations. It might have been tongues and prophecy. I don't know. It's a bit open-ended, isn't it? And I think you've got to remember that. There were demonstrations of the Spirit's power. I want things that people call demonstrations of the Spirit's power. Don't you? I mean, I don't even know what I want sometimes, but I want it where they say, well, that was a demonstration. Now, it could be the the power of the preaching, and there's all sorts of theories you'll find in any commentary you read. But actually, it's quite an open phrase. Look at this one, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 and 6. And it says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. When you actually stop and think about it, that's pretty open. There's a lot of variety in what the Holy Spirit will do. There's different kinds of gifts, there's different kinds of service, there's different kinds of working, but they're all work of the Holy Spirit. Or what about this one, which is just one example of a common terminology. Hebrews 2. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I would say that is, again, very generalised talking. I mean, what is a sign and wonder? I think it's something that makes you wonder, isn't it? Must be. So, God will do things that make you wonder. They will be associated with ordinary gospel preaching and church life. What's a miracle? Well, a miracle is something you describe as a miracle. That was a miracle. And you're not just using it like you mean it. I don't know. God healed. God God fed. God provided. You know, this happened to that and it's miraculous. I think we need to hear lots more of that. But I think God wants to do lots more of it. But I think it's very open. You can't necessarily say, well, that's what I call a miracle, not that. I think it's about... That's what you say. You say, that's a wonderful, that's a miracle. Look at that. Well, I think we launch lots of things like that. Do you understand what I mean? And I don't think we're always going to know what we're looking for. Let's take Galatians 3.5, last of those verses. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Now, the reason I put that one up is I also want to make it very clear that miracles, signs and wonders were not associated merely with the Twelve or the Book of Acts of the Apostles. Even on the day of Pentecost, the whole 120 got something. They got stuff they weren't expecting. They got tongues of fire. Where did that come from? I don't know. There's many more precedent for that. They got a violent wind going through the house. They got all sorts of things that, that were new. But they do seem to all have been involved, not just the Twelve. And then as you go on through the New Testament, it's clear. We're reading from Hebrews just now. We read from Corinthians. These things were into church life. Here we're the Galatians. And Paul is writing to the Galatians and he says, does God give you his spirit, so he gives them their spirit, and work miracles among you? He's talking about them. Because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard. He's bringing them back to their faith because they got very legalistic. But by the way, he's showing us that normal church life involved things like people knowing they've received the Spirit, being very conscious of the Spirit, and having miracles working amongst them. Hallelujah. That's what normal church life is, as we walk in faith. So we've got to be open 
for God to do more things amongst us. We can't just have a government-approved list of things the Holy Spirit can do. It doesn't work that way. On the day of Pentecost, I've already said, that violent wind, <laughs> they had violent wind, sorry. That, sorry, my mind went somewhere completely out. It's all right, you're allowed to have a brief, humorous burst there. Uh, there was a violent wind. Oh, you're too English, don't worry, don't worry. just thought they'd eaten the wrong thing the night before. They... they that they, they had the, this sound of a rushing wind from heaven. Let's get back on track. It's all right. Makes it human. They had this sound of rushing wind from heaven. They also all experienced these tongues of fire. Now, as I say, they probably hadn't seen or heard anything like it before. Then speaking in tongues, I don't think any of them had spoken in tongues before. And what that seemed to do was open the door of expectation for the age that was coming for signs, wonders, miracles and healings. Actually, in the rest of the New Testament, you don't actually read again about tongues of fire, but you do read about a house shaking, you do read about life-changing visions, you read about dreams, prison doors opening, prophesying, tongue speaking, healings, occasional resurrection, miraculous travel, like Philip, miraculous preservations in an earthquake, a shipwreck, a snake bite, And most of all, thousands and thousands of people radically changed, like the Apostle Paul was, but he's only one example. People radically changed. Cornelius, Apostle Paul, Philippian jailer. So you see all this happening all the way through from then on. So the day of Pentecost didn't set parameters. It's got to be tongues of flame. It's got to sound like the wind. No, no. It just opened the door to an age in which the Holy Spirit will do things that we will call signs, wonders and miracles. And we're still in it. We need more of it, don't we? We need to be open to the Holy Spirit. He wants to do a lot more with us than we've ever yet seen. He wants to take some of us right into areas we've never been before. I know he does. I want us, myself as well, I want us to be open to the Holy Spirit. I want us to be open as we go forward through this Christmas period, but particularly as we begin to get into the next year. I want us to be open. God, will you do with us what you want to do? Amen?